We're starting a new series here in the uh, month of December, and this morning we're talking about loving the world around us. And you say, well, who can't love the world around us? I mean, with all of its grandeur and beauty, the majestic snow-capped mountain peaks, the restless waves that crash upon the rocky coast, a frosty night so clear that you don't need any other light than the clear moonlight to see where you're going, the power of a Niagara Falls, the mystery of an old faithful, the delicately carved spires of a Bryce Canyon. I mean, who can't love the beauty of this world? And I would agree, but that's, that's not what we mean when we say love the world around us. Well, let me try again. Maybe it's about the living creation that, that brings out this love. I'm, I'm just amazed at God's creative genius. Uh, the peregrine falcon is the fastest creature on the planet. Now, most of the time he spends his time soaring up above looking for food, but what sets him apart from every other creature is the fact that he exceeds 200 miles an hour in a steep dive. Now, to put that into context, folks, uh, the, the Indy uh, race cars uh, qualify for the Indianapolis 500 uh, at speeds just over 200 miles an hour. The falcon's aerodynamic shape, swept back wings, stiff feathers, all enable him to reach such speeds. And when he reaches that speed of 200 miles per hour, his heart rate is 900 beats per minute. Incredible. The only thing that ever comes close is the heartbeat of people anticipating a sermon. Beyond that, it, <laughs> nothing else even comes close. And you think, but there are other problems when you reach that kind of a speed. For instance, how can a falcon's eyes focus on prey that's a mile away while being blasted in the face with this air? Well, to begin with, the falcon has five times more photoreceptor cells than our eyes, which enable him to make split-second adjustments. Plus, he has a secondary clear eyelid that covers his eye but doesn't hamper visibility. And finally, beneath his eye is a dark patch similar to a football player's eye black, which cuts down on the glare. And, and if you think the eyes are a problem, breathing is even worse. When you are going that speed, it, there's, there's a wall of air, an air dam that builds up in front, and it, and it stifles the breath. Plus, when he reaches those speeds, the pressure inside the falcon's lungs is so great that any other animal's lungs would explode. But God gets around that inability to breathe in that in that there is a tiny little cone-shaped bone in the center of his nostril. It is that cone that breaks up that air dam so that he can actually breathe. It is the same thing you see on the cent at the center of a jet engine. There is a cone in the center of that engine that breaks up the air that allows the jet engine to, to do the same thing at high speeds. God's creation of the falcon led to such technological advancements, and you think, my goodness, how could you not love the world when God's creative genius is so obvious? And I would agree, I love learning about God's creation that way. But, but that's still not what we mean when we say love the world around you. It is a part of the living creation, but that phrase simply describes loving other people. And that's not hard. It's easy to love the beauty of this world. It's easy to love the creation of this world. It's not so easy to love the people of this world. Poet C.W. Vandenberg put it this way, to love the world for me is no chore. My only real problem is my neighbor next door. <laughs> Do you ever feel that way? You know, it, it, 
When someone looks so different than you, is, is it hard to love them? When someone thinks so different from you, is it hard to love them? When someone acts so differently than you, is it hard to love them? Yeah. As we enter this Christmas season, it's a good time to remember, I think, our vision shorthand, Yes to Love. You've already seen a Yes to Love video this morning. So what's this Yes to Love thing mean? If, if you've been here for a long time, you already know. But if you've been here and you're new to the congregation for the last year, year and a half, you may not quite have a handle on this. To, to put it simply, yes to love means we affirm the importance of loving God and loving others. Thus, the numeral two instead of the preposition two. Our love goes both directions, loving God and loving others. And you see, if we aren't careful, our lives can be so caught up in the expectations of the season that we lose track of God's expectation for our lives in all seasons. So here at this season of the year, we dare not forget God's emphasis on the power of love. And I want to take you to one of the stories in the New Testament where Jesus has this encounter with a young man who's a student of the law. Mark, in, in the 12th chapter, records it, and you've already been introduced to it in, in Tobin's uh, meditation this morning, but in Mark chapter 12, uh, we begin in, in verse 28 with these words. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Now, the them is other teachers, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, and Jesus, and they're debating back and forth. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important. Now, we need a little context here. This is not a random discussion, okay? This is the third round of a religious boxing match. The leaders of the day are desperately trying to find some way to discredit Jesus. As a matter of fact, they spent more time trying to undermine him than to listen to him. And had they listened to God in their midst, their lives would have been transformed. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been in this debate with Jesus Christ. And they've been trounced in the first two rounds. And that's when they wise up a little bit and they send in this hotshot professor with a silky smooth question. And with much diplomacy, he asks Jesus that question about the greatest command. Now, one would expect Jesus to answer like this. All commands of God are great. How can I choose one over the other? And in a sense, that would be accurate. All of God's commands are great. But let me suggest something for you to chew on this morning. All Scripture is equally true, but not all Scripture is equally relevant. Now, let me say that again in case you've been wandering through the land of Nod for the last few minutes. I want you to get this, all right? All Scripture is equally true, but not equally relevant. Take, for instance, let me describe what I mean. Job 19.17, this is what Job says, quote, my breath is offensive to my wife. That's Bible passage. Every married man here knows that Job 19.17 is true. It's as true as John 3.16. But this verse out of Job isn't even close to being relevant to our lives like John 3.16. So, what may have surprised those who were listening to Jesus, what may have surprised you is that Jesus actually answers the question, and he says, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, the first commandment that Jesus quotes is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. It's called the Shema. It's named after the first Hebrew word in the sentence, hear. Devoted Jews recited this at the beginning of the morning and the evening. It, it opened up the service in the synagogues every Friday evening. It was the declaration of the unity of God and our obligation to love Him with all of our being. For the Jew, there was no greater obligation. But Jesus doesn't stop with that one. He adds this command from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. These two don't appear in Scripture back to back, but Jesus puts them back to back because here's the question. You know that we're supposed to love God. Now, I know what it means to love my family. I know what it means to love my wife. What does it mean to love God? How do I demonstrate loving God? And so Jesus answers that with the next question or with the next answer, which is simply this, and love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, 18, he puts those two together. And when you understand how to love one another, other human beings whom God loves, then that's our way of expressing love to God. You love my family, and you've expressed love to me. You see how it works? Love for God is best seen in loving those who He loves and who He died for. Now, if we keep these two commandments, we will by necessity fulfill all the crucial features of the entire Old Testament law. The simple answer that Jesus gave is so incredibly profound that it makes us want to dig deeper to know this God who said yes to love. Well, the, the young scholar, is, uh, he's at a loss for words. He simply says, well said, teacher. I mean, what else is he going to say at this point in time? I mean, the answer is perfect. He goes on and says, you're right in saying that God is one and that there is no other but Him. To love Him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that He had answered wisely, He said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask Him any more questions. With no comeback, He can only compliment the wisdom of Jesus and agree. And that's where we oftentimes find the end of the story. We say, Jesus was victorious. They couldn't ask him any more questions about that. Great opportunity. But did you notice what Jesus said to the young man? Words that break my heart. You are not far from the kingdom of God. What? We're left hanging here in this story. What happens? How does the story really end? Jesus said, you're not, you're not in the king. You're not far from the king, but you're not there yet. And you think, oh my goodness, does the young man ever come back? Does he ever say to Jesus, okay, I know the right thing to do. Now teach me how to do it. He's like the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, go and sell everything that you had. Uh, give to the poor and come follow me and you'll have treasures in heaven. And the young man turned away sadly. And we think, well, did he ever come back? We won't know the ending to these stories until we get home and we hear the ending from Jesus. Here's his point. Knowing the importance of loving God and our neighbor isn't the same as actually loving God and our neighbor. Knowing is not the same as doing. 
Now, we English-speaking folks use the word love to describe everything. I mean, anything from I just love it when the Hoosiers are on a fast break and they slam dunk the ball to I just love my family. Use the same word to describe that. We get all caught up in the emotion of the thought of love as if love is the equivalent of a fast-beating heart or butterflies in my stomach. Now, the love that Jesus speaks of in this text is very specific. This is not a love of feeling or a superficial response to somebody tugging at my heartstrings. This love is a choice. This love is a decision. It must be real. It must be authentic. It cannot be fleeting or sporadic. It's not for show. That would be hypocritical, and that's the problem with the Pharisees. That's why Jesus spells it out so clearly. Genuine love grows out of your whole being. Heart, soul, mind, and strength apart from the emotions. And he says, love God, say it often, live it more. Love your neighbor, say it often, but live it more. Now, I believe in this past year, we, we've been trying to grow in our love for God and ultimately in our love for others with, with our 50th year goals. It, it's, it's actually been a year. Um, uh, I, it was last December when I was dreaming out loud in a sermon, and I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if in our 50th year we prayed for 50,000 hours and we did 50,000 hours of service in the congregation and 50,000 hours of service outside these walls, and we raised $5 million to pay off the indebtedness and, and have money left to do some grand things in the kingdom of God. It's been, it's been, that, it's been almost a year since we started this whole process. And some of you have asked me the last couple of weeks, well, how did everything turn out? Well, we've waited a couple of weeks to make sure we had all the paperwork and, and, and notes and stuff in. And so I want you, I want you to know we, we have something to celebrate. I, I just am overwhelmed by what you as a congregation have accomplished. You've prayed more. You've served more. Uh, you've given more this year. It has been a wonderful 50th year. But let me tell you what happened. We've got some slides here that will help make it a little bit clearer. In our Unleashed campaign, uh, three weeks ago when we had our first, our, uh, yeah, three weeks ago when we had our first fruits offering, um, I guess that was two weeks ago, the, the offering was three, over $309,000. Then you add that to what had already been given through the year and was also paid down on the loan, and that was over $700,000. You add that to what was already built into the budget for our building payments, and we have given over an extra million dollars this year just to pay toward the debt. That's, that's phenomenal. Now, the next slide tells you this was the total pledges, almost $2.5 million in pledges over the next three years. You add that to the $1.2 million that's built into the budget, and we're over that $4 million mark uh, pretty close, and, uh, or we're getting at least close to that $4 million mark, and, and we're going to get there when it comes to paying off the indebtedness, because let me, let me show you why. You see, last year, uh, at, the, at the beginning of 2012, uh, we had about $4.3 million of indebtedness left over. With what we have already received and paid down, the indebtedness is now at 3.2, uh, or slightly over that million left. And so by the time you add the pledges together, that'll be done, and we will have money left over to do something incredible in the kingdom. You have done great things in this 50th year, and God has blessed in incredible ways, and I'm grateful for what you've done. But while we celebrated our 50th years uh, in October with our 
outdoor extravaganza and fireworks. Next Sunday, we're going to celebrate the actual birth of the church in our worship service. Uh, it was sometime in December. There are a couple different dates that are thrown out. I'm not sure exactly which one is accurate, so we've just said the month of December is our actual 50th anniversary date. We'll celebrate that next year. And you say, well, it's, it's been a wonderful, great first 50 years, and we had a wonderful goal this year to do. What's next? Well, I'm really glad you asked that question. For the first year of the next 50 years of this congregation's life, I, I, I truly want us to be committed to the mission of the church. What if, what if in this next year, 2013, the first year of the next 50, every one of us makes a concerted effort to reach out to someone else with the message of the hope of Jesus Christ who doesn't know? Oh, folks. That'll make an impact like nothing else that this church has ever done. And this is not just about something temporary. This is, this is a goal with eternal implications. You see, being fiscally responsible is important. Being spiritually responsible is vital. So this year, this year, all of us find a way to build a relationship with somebody else so that we can introduce them to Jesus. And if you're having a hard time remembering that, just put it in these words. Each one, reach one. Can you say that out loud with me? Each one, reach one, okay? That year. This will be the best way to love the world around us. Those words of Jesus, you see, still echo through the corridors of history. You're not, you're not far from the kingdom. Who do you know that you work with? Who's in your family? Who goes to school with you? Who's in your sorority or fraternity? Who do you know that's a dear friend, somebody that you love dearly? And you would have to describe them as not far from the kingdom. They don't know Jesus yet. They're, they're not far from the kingdom. Will you pray that God will open up the doors so that you can love your neighbor as yourself? Because let me ask you, if you weren't in the kingdom, wouldn't you want somebody to introduce you to Jesus Christ? A couple of weeks ago, I read this passage of Scripture, which is so familiar to us that I think we just gloss over it and don't think anything about it. Uh, it's it's uh, from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It, it is just as Jesus is preparing to ascend from this world to the Father, he leaves this word with his followers. But you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I want you to see a couple things about that verse that I didn't focus on when I read it three weeks ago. You are not alone in this endeavor. God's Spirit will help you. It says, but when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, every Christian has living inside of him or her the Spirit of the living God. When you say, I can't do that, I'm by myself, you aren't by yourself. God opens up the opportunities and makes things happen. It, this is God's mission for his church. He's not going to leave us alone in this one. He's going to come alongside. He will be with us. You are not alone in this endeavor. The spirit of the living God lives in us. And secondly, we need to personalize this passage so that it, it has a greater impact on us. I mean, when you talk about Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, that's, that's on the other side of the world. And we just don't, we just kind of gloss over that. So, for us, we need to make it personal. For us, Jerusalem is Bloomington. Judea, that's Indiana. Samaria and the Samaritans, that's got to be Kentucky. <laughs> and the ends of the earth, well, that's the ends of the earth. 
The problem is that we get so hung up on the last part, the ends of the earth part, and we think, I can't go to the ends of the earth, that we forget what he says before. The first three are local. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, that was all in the local vicinity, and then it was to the ends of the earth. And you see, that's harder than than doing something to the ends of the earth. When I write out a check to a missionary who serves halfway around the world, and and I give them money, and I can say, see, I love the world, that's easy for me to do. That's very little of my person involved in it. But if I have to go next door to somebody, if I have to deal with somebody that maybe maybe it makes me a little uncomfortable to be around because they're different than I am. Boy, that, then that takes something out of me. I, I think it's harder to love those who are next door than it is those who are halfway around the world. And frankly, folks, I'm worried about what's right here at home. Let me remind you again, we are losing the millennial generation, that group that was born between 1980 and 2000. They have edged out the baby boomers to become the largest generation in American history. All of our students at Indiana University and Ivy Tech fit into this category. They are millennials. My daughters, my sons-in-law, their friends fit into this category. They are millennials. Only 13% of the millennial generation indicate, indicate any kind of religion is really important in their life. Any kind of religion. Not talking Christianity. Any kind. 13 They are the least religious generation in the history of the United States of America. Three out of four say they're spiritual, they're just not religious, and they haven't seen anything significant in the church to reshape or to help or to encourage the world around them, and so they don't think the church has anything significant to offer them. Oh, people, you've got to realize, if we lose the millennial generation then the generation after them practically has no spiritual hope of finding the answer. I realize the the concept is a bit daunting. If you've got visions of walking up to somebody's door, knocking on the door, saying, would you like to come to church with me, and then having the door slammed in your face, I get it. That's that's daunting. I find that daunting. I don't want to do it that way. As a matter of fact, I don't like somebody coming up my sidewalk, pounding on my door that I don't know, and trying to do something, sell me something, convince me of something. I'm very skeptical of that. So I get it if you feel that, but that's not what I'm asking you to do. What I'm asking you to do is to build a relationship with people that right now you don't have a relationship with and who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ that you begin to look at people differently. Don't just see the crowd. Begin to see the individual faces in the crowd. Start looking and listening In ways that you haven't done in the past, see people differently. Yes, you can walk up to a stranger and say, you wouldn't want to go to church with me, would you? And have them say no, to which you probably would be relieved. But that's not the best way. The best way is developing a loving relationship that opens up the opportunity, that gives you credibility, that lets them be comfortable to ask you the tough questions. And don't worry if you can't answer the tough questions. It's not about that right now. It's about you being able to share your faith and what a difference Jesus Christ has made in your life. Because when the tough questions come, you can always say, I I don't have an answer for that one yet, but I know somebody does have an answer. Or let's study it together, or let's find an answer together. That's the, the credibility of your genuine love is what matters. Now, if you only build a relationship just for the sake of building a relationship, that's not it either. We are to love God, and we're to love others, and we're to bring the two together. And that's the most uh, significant accomplishment that you and I can make in this world. Therefore, we have to change the way we look at neighbor. 
Don't make people your projects. Just love them, listen to them, and earn the right to share your own faith story with them. If I love my neighbor as myself, and that's the way I want my neighbor to treat me, why wouldn't I want to share the gospel? Again, if I didn't know Jesus, wouldn't, and if you didn't know Jesus, wouldn't you want somebody to share that story with you? So how do we get past the mental and emotional barriers of sharing our faith? How do we get past the fear of, of, of doing all this? Just be yourself. Just be yourself. That's why we like to, to talk about good deeds lead to goodwill, and goodwill leads to good news. Good deeds lead to goodwill, and goodwill leads to good news. In other words, when you do something nice, it begins to build the relationship. And as the relationship grows, it will eventually give you the opportunity to talk about your faith, that which is most important to you. The mission of the church is not physical or emotional or social or financial, but spiritual. However, sometimes the best way to start a relationship and to build a relationship is to reach somebody through their physical, emotional, social, or financial concerns. Maybe reaching out that way will help you build that relationship. And remember where loving God by loving others really begins. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Did you see that? Do good to all people, but especially to those in the family. So in this season of the year, when we talk about good tidings of great joy and when we talk about love and the season and spreading all this wonderful joy, I've got an idea for you that I think will at least help you dip your toe in the water of this building relationship thing and, tell, and, and, uh, and reassure you that breaking the ice is not as hard as you may think it really is. So we're going to do this inside the family to begin with. And out at the kiosk out here, the, the Adopt-A-Family kiosk, we have names of shut-ins and widows and widowers who are part of this congregation. And what I would suggest to you is you go as a family, take one of those names, and then do something nice for that shut-in or that widow or that widower during this season. I'm going to suggest that as a family, uh, or as a small group, or, or, or a study group, or a ministry group, or something. You go and go caroling during the season to their door. I, I'm telling you, you do that for somebody in the congregation who's shut in, or a widow or a widow, and it will warm their hearts, and it will warm your hearts as well. I mean, this is the season to do it, and nothing but Christmas carols bring quite the sound of joy. Now, if you go caroling at somebody's door, and that would not be interpreted as loving your neighbor, then let me suggest that you do something other than sing. All right, <laughs> write a note, send a card, bake a platter of cookies and take it to somebody. Do something incredibly nice. And when you realize, hey, opening that door to that relationship is not as hard as I thought it was inside these walls, then outside these walls, it will come a little easier as well. And you say, what, does it really make that big of a difference? I think so. If you could ask Amy's son, who was an international student who came to Indiana University here and then came here at, to Sherwood Oaks, I, I think you'd get the answer that you need. In, in a recent email, Amy wrote this, and, and she talks about her time here at Sherwood Oaks, and, and this is what she wrote just recently. I enjoyed the one-by-one -one Bible study with my Christian friends, which helped me to develop a better understanding of Christianity and a deeper friendship with them. I could not forget the day I received my baptism at Sherwood Oaks. 
All the church members were standing up and applauding for me. I cried like a newborn baby. I felt I had been lost and found my home again. Those mature and decent Christians I knew from SOCC remind me of God's love for me and set an example for me about how to be a better person. Do, do, do you get it? Amy will be in heaven because somebody here reached out to her. Her whole eternity was changed by love. And that's really what we mean by loving the world around you.